Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you, so let's get to it. Good morning, Ascent. So glad to see all of you. How are you doing this morning? Okay, a little iffy, iffy. I saw some people who didn't even try to make a sound. It's like one of those mornings. It's like, I'm just I'm not going to do this, dude. Uh, within the first five minutes, shame on you. Yes, we are a church built on shame and guilt. We will guilt you into doing it. Uh, no, we're a grace-based church. We, we believe the love of Jesus is what compels us. And uh, I am so excited to stand up here and celebrate that every Sunday and celebrate that this Sunday as well as we finish up our series, Unscripted, and believe it or not, We're going to start our Christmas series next, which is absolutely insane to me that we are already celebrating Christmas. And uh, we're about to enter into a season where there's a whole bunch of craziness. Amen. We've got gifts to buy. How many of you are like the last minute Christmas shoppers? Anybody in here? Yes, you are my people. How many of you already have all of your Christmas shopping done? Okay, good. We're all procrastinators here at Ascent. Oh, like usually there's one person I can hate on. It's like, no, none of us do that that early. So we, we, uh, we know we're about to enter into this season of just complete craziness. And uh, as we finish up this series, I've been reminded several times this week just how uncertain life is. Uh, just how fragile life can truly be. And in the last 48 hours, I've heard of a, a young man who died unexpectedly. A senior in high school, his family was planning what graduation and the next steps were going to look like, and now they're planning a funeral. Uh, I've heard of a a person who was going out and uh, was expecting just to do a little thing with the the family and ended up uh, now having to plan a funeral for their grandfather. I uh, have heard of many other tragedies in people's lives that don't necessarily equal up with death, uh, but they're things that were unexpected that are going on in the family's life. events that they, they were not fully expecting. They, they went off of the script of what it was supposed to be. They, they found themselves somewhere or planning something that they did not expect themselves to be doing because life went off of the script. Life is full of unexpected surprises. Sometimes those surprises are good. <laughs> Sometimes we, we find things that go the way we want them to go that we weren't expecting. But more often than not, friends, it's not winning the lottery. It's losing somebody we love. And as we close out this series... I want to hopefully today encourage you that there is a plan. Now, we don't always see that plan, and that plan is not always about us. In fact, I would say it's never about us, but there is a plan. And that plan is moving towards an end, an end in which there is a hope for all of us. And in the midst of this plan, I want to encourage those of you in this room today. Here's where I'm going with this message. Here's where we've been going with this whole series. The goal is to live a life that embraces the unscripted. I don't know, how many of you are control freaks like me? Raise your hand if you're a control freak. If you just felt the urge to raise your neighbor's hand, you might be a control freak. I am a control freak. I'm a planner. I want, I want to know what's going to happen. Uh, before we planted Ascent, I literally, I, I planned out my five-year plan of sermons. I did five-year plan of what I thought Ascent was going to be like. Within three months, I threw away the plan. Because it was nothing like what I planned. And yet there's something in my heart that gives me comfort when I feel like I can control the outcome. I want to plan. I have, right now you guys might think this is ridiculous, I have six children names planned out for Taylor and I. Like I don't know what's going to happen if we have a different boy to girl ratio uh, because it's going to throw my whole plan off because I've already got their names picked out. This is the kind of planner that I am. I want to know what's coming because it gives me a sense of comfort. 
And yet what I'm trying to tell you guys today is the way to live is to not try to plan out every outcome, but to embrace and to believe in the one who authors the outcome. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know the one who is writing the script and he is good. I don't know how this situation is going to work out, but I can trust the one who does know how it's going to work out. And that is the goal for all of us. And we're going to look at what it looks like to live unscripted as we jump into James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17 here in a minute. But I want to, I want to just stop for a minute and talk about what God's script is. Uh, we, we call these the scriptures, uh, which you'll notice actually in the word is the word script. And for those of you who maybe the Bible's been confusing, I pray that these next few minutes will kind of help you out a little bit as we look at the, the grand scope of what the Bible is all about. Because for some of us, we grew up thinking the Bible was a list of rules, and we followed these rules, and we got the life we were supposed to get. If I do the right things, then the right things will happen to me. If I, if I follow this, if I become a Proverbs 31 woman, then I'm going to have the perfect marriage, right? And then you try your hardest, and you marry somebody, and they didn't turn out to be the Prince Charming you thought they were. If, if, I, if I follow the rules in this, I'm going to have a long life. And then you go to the doctor and you get a report you weren't expecting. If I follow this, I'm going to raise my kids and they're going to be godly. And then your kids go off on their own path. And, and if you follow this as a book of rules that is supposed to give you something back, what you're really doing is you're looking at God as a vending machine. I paid my tithes, God, so now you ought to bless my money. I, I gave you the first of my week. I went to the church gathering every single week. I listened to that guy talk for like 45 minutes every week, God. It was torture. And, and now my life's falling apart. I don't know why you're laughing so hard, but that hurts a little. Uh, others of us would maybe view this as just uh, a whole bunch of, of random stories that make very little sense to us. And, and it's really frustrating because we come to this in times of need and, and we do that. I don't know if you've ever done the method where you're in a time of need and you take your Bible and you just open the thing up and you say, God, give me something. And then it's like, I'm going to smash the teeth of the children in Babylon. <laughs> Try again, you know. What is this book supposed to be about? And here's something that will drastically change the way you view the scriptures and you view your life if you will if you'll listen to what I'm about to say and that is the scriptures are not about you and what you can get from them really at all they're about God so here's something that'll kind of shatter our brains uh, and, and it's, it's something that really I don't think you can learn until you've grown up and life's hit you hard enough and that is this the world is not about you see I, I grew up thinking and I still do sometimes when I throw my little fits that everything should revolve around me. You guys should treat me right because it's all about me. Things should go my way. I'm mad at God because I had a plan and he didn't work that plan out. Oh, boo-hoo. Blake's plan didn't work out. And yet that is kind of the philosophy a lot of us take on. The world revolves around us. Well, what the scriptures would say is actually, no, the, world, the, the scriptures, the script of the entire world revolves around one guy and his name is not Blake. His name is Jesus. And all of the script actually leads and points to Jesus. And we see this in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is divided into two different sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're written over thousands of years. One of the things that makes our faith unique from every other faith is it was not written by one person. Uh, it's actually really, really powerful when you think about it, that this was written over thousands of years by 20 to 30 different people in different contexts and different cultures, different languages even. And yet they all come together and they tell one story about a guy named Jesus. See, in other religions, a guy had a bad burrito or an inspiration from somewhere and he sat down and he wrote a book and he was very convincing with his words. And we believe what that guy says. But in our faith, we believe 
because we believe God is writing through men because there's no way that this many men could write one story all the same and it all work out to point towards Jesus. And you see what's interesting is in the Old Testament, which is before Jesus, and the New Testament, which is after Jesus, there's four parts to each. And the New Testament actually mirrors the Old Testament in the opposite way. So there's four things that happen in the Old Testament. And then those four things happen in reverse in the New Testament. If we have it like a triangle, Jesus would be at the top of that triangle. And we see this in Luke chapter 24. If you want to read it, you should this week. Uh, It's really kind of a funny story. Jesus, who is just resurrected from the dead, is walking on a road, and he's walking by these two guys. It's the road to Emmaus. And these guys are talking about what has all transpired. They're talking about Jesus and the guy who talked a really big game, and he did all the miracles, and some people even thought he was the Messiah, and now he's dead and in a grave. And Jesus walks up on these guys, and I love Jesus, because he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? They're like, you haven't heard? Have you lived under a cave? This Jesus guy. And then Jesus just plays along with them. He said, oh, tell me, tell me more about this Jesus guy as he walks with them. And then what Jesus does before he reveals to them who he is, he opens the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, those written by Moses and the prophets long before Jesus. And he shows them how all of the scripture leading up to that point was about himself. And then their eyes are open and they see Jesus as the climax of humanity. You see, what happens in the Old Testament, the four things, number one, if you want to take notes, uh, is creation. That's where it all begins. God creates the world, and when he creates the world, he creates the world good. There is perfect relationship between humanity. In other words, we didn't hate each other. We loved each other. We were naked and unashamed. That is far more than physical nakedness. That is, you can see everything that there is about me, and I am not ashamed of it. Man, I wish I could live that way sometimes, don't you? There are parts of me I want to hide desperately. But in the beginning, there was nothing like that. And they lived in perfect communion with God, ruling and reigning and working with him in the garden. This is what God always wanted. He wanted a family to work and reign with him. And then about two pages into the Bible, depending on how small your print is, this guy who is called the snake, who we later find out in scripture is Satan shows up and Satan tempts man into which is part two of this. And that is rebellion. And the man and the woman rebelled in the same way you and I rebel to this day. See, it had nothing to do that they ate an apple from a tree or fruit from a tree. It actually has to do with the tree that they ate from, which was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That word evil is raw. It means bad, of good and bad. In other words, what they wanted to do, what the devil tempted them to do, was to choose for themselves what was good and what was bad. I will choose for myself what is right and what is wrong. I don't need God to tell me what is right and what is wrong. I'm going to decide that for myself. And the temptation to be God was too much for them, and they reached out and they ate of the fruit. And yet when we rebel against God, when we decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, it is called sin. And if God is completely life, and I choose something different than what he said, then the only result can be death. Death. And in the Hebrew wording, death is so much more than just physical death. Death is all of the evil in life that we hate. Death is the marriage that you can't stand. Death is the kid who has been diagnosed with cancer at five years old. Death is all that is wrong within us and within the world. This rebellion broke things. That's part two. Part three is judgment. See, because God loves humanity, but he hates sin. You know why he hates sin? Because sin hurts us. And we hate things that hurt the things we love. I remember one time I had a dream about my little sister, Abby. Uh, she, she was before she was 16 years old. 
I had a dream that she uh, died in a car crash. Uh, and I can remember waking up still, and I screamed at the top of my lungs, No! And I can still feel the anger that was in my bones as I screamed that. My wife was probably like, What? <laughs> but in that moment, all I could feel was pain and deep anger. For those of you who are parents, I'm sure you feel that plus some. Somebody wants to hurt your baby? Yeah, you didn't think you could kill somebody, but let them touch your baby and see what happens. Because there is great anger for that which hurts what we love. Sin hurts that which God loves. And so there must be judgment for sin. God is holy. He can't be in the presence of it. And the worst effect of sin, the worst effect is not not all the death that is created around us. The worst effect is that it separates us from God. And you and I, we were created for God. The reason why there's so many people searching to fill the empty void in their heart is because it was a a hole that only God could fill. And so they run and they they search in in drugs and sex and, and all the different various ways to try to fill that hole that only God can fill. And that sin only drives a wedge further between them and God. Separates us. There must be judgment for the sin. Then the fourth act of the Old Testament is promise. So there's creation, there's rebellion, there's judgment, and then there's promise. See, after every time the people of God rebel, there is a promise. At the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, you should read it this week. After man has rebelled against God, God doesn't say, well, that project failed and brush him off and move on to the next one. No, he says, one day there will rise up from the seed of a woman a Savior who will crush the head of the serpent. Although he will strike the heel, this Savior, this Messiah will crush the head of that serpent. And things will go back to the way they were supposed to be. And then we see that this actually just repeats throughout the Old Testament. You can read Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and you'll just see it go on and on and on and on throughout the Old Testament if you read it that way. See, we've all been trying to get back to the, recre- to the creation, in which in the beginning everything was good. God has been working it back towards then. But we see God makes a promise to Adam and Eve that from her seed will come this Savior. And so you can imagine the joy in chapter 4 when she has a boy. And yet we find out that that only leads to more rebellion as the first two brothers to ever exist kill each other. One brother kills the other brother and then hides from God, rather. And then we see... Uh, in the story of Noah, that by the time Noah comes along, the world has rebelled in such a way that it said it grieved God to his heart that he made humanity at all. And yet there's a promise after the judgment, isn't there? He saves the family of Noah. And then there's more rebellion. We get to the Tower of Babel and a man says, we are going to be our own God. And so they come together and they try to build a tower up to the heavens. And so God has to disperse them and separate them. Rebellion, judgment, but then there's a promise. God promises that through Israel will come a savior. And then what we see, the rest of the Old Testament is a bunch of people from Israel who are total mess ups. So if you read the Bible, you're going to read the Old Testament. You're going to be like, all of these guys are really screwed up. And that's kind of the point that they all fall just a little bit short. The heroes of our faith, Abraham, he, he, he lied to the, to the king or sorry, Moses, rather. He lied to, to the Pharaoh of Egypt and he told the Pharaoh that his wife was his sister. Because he was scared that his wife was so pretty that Pharaoh would kill him and take his wife. So the coward said, she's my sister. Who says that? A human? (laughs) A human like me who's afraid, who's cowardly. And what happens is over and over there's judgment, there's rebellion, and then there's another promise. And at the end of the Old Testament, what you find are the prophets. And the prophets are these fiery guys. Uh, they, 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 like if you read Ezekiel, 
or Isaiah, you're like, man, these guys have not had their morning cup of coffee because they are angry. And they are rightfully angry at Israel because Israel has yet again rebelled against God. And they are telling of the judgment that is to come. But in all of the prophets, there is yet again a promise that one day God is going to bless the whole world to the nation of Israel. And although it doesn't look like it right now, although it looks like Babylon has taken us out to lunch, God is going to fulfill his promise. Creation, rebellion, judgment, promise. We get to the New Testament, and these work in absolute reverse. You open the New Testament thousands of years after the Old Testament story had begun, and we open to the New Testament, and we find a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus comes, and he is the fulfillment of all of the promises. Remember, the fourth thing was God makes a promise. Jesus comes, and he fulfills all of the promises of God. There are over 800 promises. Jesus fulfills all of them. Just to kind of help wrap your mind around how crazy that is, some scientist, guy smarter than me, came up with a, a formula to show us just how amazing it would be for Jesus to fulfill even eight of those 800. Just eight of them. He said it would be like if you took silver dollars and you placed these silver dollars full, filled with buckets full of silver dollars and you poured them over the state of Texas and it covered the entire ground of the state of Texas two inches deep of silver dollars, the odds of you going in there and finding eight gold silver dollars specially marked and just randomly picking out of all of those silver dollars in the whole state of Texas, if you just got the eight gold silver dollars, that would be the same odds as Jesus fulfilling just eight of the promises in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus comes and he fulfills every single promise. See, some people say that our faith is a blind faith. I disagree with that completely. You actually have to have more faith to not believe that this is true. This is absolutely stunning what Jesus does, and we see it throughout the Scriptures. Promise fulfilled. Now, I told you that the third thing in the Old Testament was that there was judgment. Jesus came, and he ultimately took on our judgment. See, for us to be in the presence of God, we have to be holy, and yet we can't be holy. So all the way back in Leviticus, God instituted this plan to kill animals, to sacrifice animals so that their innocent blood would cover our blood so that we could be in the sanctuary with God. And yet these things were never meant to actually take away our sin because the blood of animals could not make up for sin. It needed to be the blood of a pure sacrifice. Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life. And then on the cross, he pours out his blood as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. You see, as a sinner, what do I deserve? I told you earlier, it's death. Jesus, who comes and lives a righteous life, is the only one to ever live that deserved life. And yet, what did he do? He died. He took on my death so that I could have life. He was forsaken so that I might be chosen. I was an enemy of God, and he died for me so that I would be a child of God if I placed my faith in him. Judgment has been satisfied in Jesus. Like, what do I got to do to make sure that I'm not judged for my sins? Nothing. It's already been done. This is why Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. Not it is finished after they go to church and, and they confess their sins to the priest. No, it is finished. You accept the gift as it is. And then the second thing I said on the Old Testament side was rebellion. So what's uh, the third thing on the New Testament side? And that is relationship has been restored. See, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened was it said the veil was torn in two. Up to this point in time, there was a veil between the Holy of Holies and the ordinary people. If you went to the Holy of Holies, you would literally die in the presence of the Lord. In fact, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he had to purify himself and make sure he had confessed every sin. And what they would do is they would tie a little bell 
around his ankle uh, so that if, if he went in there and he didn't come out, they would hear the bell ringing. So they, and if the bell stopped ringing when he stopped moving around, they would know that he died in the presence of the Lord. That's how powerful it was to be in the Lord's presence. You would die immediately in your sin. And Jesus, when he died, this interesting thing happened. The veil tore. That now there is no gap between us and the holy of holies. This is why I'm not Father Blake. I'm just Pastor Blake. Because you don't have to go to me to get to God. Now you go directly to God whenever you want. Directly to his throne room. And our primary job as Christians, as those who have faith in Jesus, is to have a relationship with him. This is what Jesus has done. Our rebellion separated us from God. Jesus, through his sacrifice, restored relationship. And then finally, the last thing. Remember the first thing we said was creation, and it was good. The last part of the play is the part of the play that is still going on. It's the part of the play that you and I find ourselves in right now, and that is new creation. See, Jesus was the first part of new creation because three days later, he rose again. I've had a lot of loved ones that have died, that have passed away, and they're all still in the grave. Jesus, you cannot find his grave. You can try, but you will not find his body. You know why? Because he's at the right hand of the Father right now. You want to know why we worship a Jewish Messiah as 2020 Americans across the other side of the globe? It's because there was really a guy who really lived, who really died, and people really saw him rise again. Like, if you want to have people believe you and start a world religion, probably the best way to do it is to die and then resurrect yourself. <laughs> Any of you guys do that? No. Because you're not the Messiah. You're not the Savior of the world. And yet Jesus is. And Jesus says, this same resurrection power now lives within us, the church, through the Holy Spirit. And you see, we're, we're in the, what the theologians would call the already but the not yet. So Jesus' resurrecting power is already here, and we experience it in our lives sometimes. Amen? There's times where you come, maybe it's at a gathering like this, and you can feel God's presence. Or maybe it's when we're out serving the community, and you say, this is the way it ought to be. When we're feeding the hungry, things look right, things are going good. But yet, there's also the part where the death is still very, very imminent around us. Some of those stories I told you at the beginning of this sermon that we see. And so what are we to do? Well, right now, we are the people who go out, And we exist as new creations. I am no longer just uh, Blake Farley. I am now Blake Farley in Christ, the child of God. I'm not a better person when I place my faith in Jesus. I'm a brand new person. And I go out and I am to be that light in this dark world. I'm to love Jesus authentically. And out of the outer flow of that, I will love like Jesus and inspire the world. And we should move the world forward with justice. And it should be a better place because the church is here. Like if the churches in Woodward were to shut down, it should make Woodward sad because we ought to be the people who are bringing light and love to this community. And the world church ought to be doing the exact same thing as we push out. And it does. Can you imagine a world without the church of Jesus Christ? It'd be a very, very dark place. And yet we await the day in which Jesus comes back fully and totally as a king. And maybe you have a picture of Jesus as this little pale white guy singing songs to the children. But in Revelation... The Apostle John, he gets a picture, a vision of Jesus who's coming in the future. And he can't, he's trying to grasp for words. You can tell it throughout all of Revelation. That's why it's so confusing. He's, he's seeing something that is so explosive to the human mind. He's like, he's just, he's trying to find any kind of words that will describe what is happening. And he describes Jesus as this warrior who's riding a horse. And he has swords coming out of his mouth and tattoos on his thighs. That's my kind of Jesus. <laughs> And you know who he's coming to wage war against? Death itself. (laughs) Who does that? Jesus. He says, death, I'm coming for you. 
and he's going to make death die. That's going to be a glorious day, friends. And we're going to be back as it was in the garden as the children of God without sin, sickness, death, disease. Amen. It's going to be a glorious day. Friends, this is the script that we find ourselves in. It's the script of Scripture and it's the script of our lives. And so with that, really quickly, uh, I want to go to James chapter 4. And I want to look at verses 13 through 17. And if we're going to live this way, if we're going to live not trying to get God to help our script and get bitter and mad at God when our script fails, but instead say, you know what, I'm going to live within God's script and I'm going to let God's script play out the way it's supposed to, and I'm going to obey Jesus in this, then how are we going to live? Well, I think James chapter 4 gives us a few ideas. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. It says, come now. And by the way, James is Jesus' little brother. Uh, which can you imagine growing up as Jesus's little brother, right? Like it's, it's never Jesus's fault uh, because he's, he's the perfect Messiah of the universe, right? Jesus, was it you or James that didn't take out the trash? You know, it's like, it was me. Uh, of course it was me. Jesus always takes out the trash when he's supposed to take out the trash. I think that would be so frustrating. Also, I find it as one of our greatest apologetics that James is a Christian. James died for the cause of his brother. How many of you have siblings? How many of you are 100% sure that your sibling is not God? Like if any of my brothers said, I am the Messiah. (laughs) No, I know you. Like you are not the Messiah. (laughs) Don't let anybody fool you. This kid is not the Messiah. And yet James is so convinced that his brother actually is the Messiah that he's willing to die for it. That's pretty amazing to me. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. What I want you to see is these people are assuming upon assumptions. We're going we're gonna to travel tomorrow or today. I don't know. We're going to leave whenever we can. We're going to go. We're going to do business. So they're assuming that the business is going to work. It's going to open up. And then they assume that not only that, but the business is going to make a profit. We got, we, got our, we got our whole life planned out. We got it scripted. This is what we're going to do. James says this. James is kind of a little bit of a fiery preacher, I think. Verse 14, he said, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. See, what James is trying to get them to understand is that the story is for them, but it's not about them. Did you guys notice in that grand story I just preached to you for 24 minutes, I never mentioned your name. I never mentioned my name because it's not about me. At the top of the triangle, it does not say Blake, it says Jesus. This is a very good story for me. God loves me. God so loved the world that he came so that I would not perish if I believe in him. It's very good news for me that God has come and created this story, but it's not about me. So things are going to happen that don't make sense in my life because I'm just an actor in the play. I'm not the author of the play. And what James is trying to say is, in the grand scope of the story, you need to realize how small you really are. It's like the morning fog. It's here and then it's gone. It's like the very beginning of the day and then it's no longer. Your life is only about this long in God's scope. And so who are you to assume what tomorrow will be? And see, here's the first thing we've got to do if we're going to live unscripted. We've got to learn to let go of that which we can't control. We've got to learn to let go of that which we can't control. See, I cannot control the outcome. This is what most of us try to do. We try to control the outcome. 
We, we want uh, a, a lot of money. And so we, we say, here's what I want. I want to have this much money by the time I'm this, this age. Uh, I was talking to a kid the other day. Uh, it's my little brother. I'm positive he's not going to watch the sermon, so I'm just going to throw him under the bus. And uh, he's, uh, he's 21, 20-something years old. I don't know. I get it confused as they get older. Uh, and uh, he, he was just telling me. I asked him what his plans were for, for his life going forward, and, and he told me, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to travel the world for the next five or six years if I want to. And I said, that's great. You can do that. That's cool. And, he sa- and I said, what are you going to do for a living? He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for a living. I'm going to be rich. <laughs> okay. Uh, I said, do you have a plan for how you're going to do that? He said, well, not really. And, and yet, I, I kind of laugh at my little brother, but I laugh because I wasn't long ago, and I, I had kind of the same similar plan. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. You know, we all have plans like that in our lives. Like when we think about our spouse or marriage, uh, I, I used to I hear advice about you need to write down everything you want in a spouse and pray for it. That's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Because <laughs> you know what God's going to send you? He's going to send you the exact opposite of your list. And you're going to go, oh, this doesn't match up. She's not blonde. She's taller than what I wanted her to be. You know, it's like you can't plan the outcome. And, and in a more serious way, you can... Say you, you want to live to be 100 years old and do all the things it takes to be 100 years old and work out and eat your vegetables and live a miserable life without any ribeyes or pecan pies. <laughs> and you could still die at 45 because you get hit by a bus. And that's just the truth of life that James wants us to understand. You cannot control the outcome as much as you want to. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't plan. This is number two. We should seek to control that which we can. We've got to let go of that which we can't control. I can't control how this marriage ends up. I can't control my spouse's behavior. But I can control what I can control. And that is the things that influence the, the plans that we have. We hold them very loosely and we say, you know what, I, I can't control my money, but if I, I want to be a blessing in God's grand plan, then maybe I should get out of debt and I should listen to Dave Ramsey and I should follow the baby steps and... I can do all those things knowing that the stock market might crash. The United States of America might not even be in existence and I lose everything I have. And I'm okay with that. But right now, I feel like to obey, I'm, I'm going to get out of debt and I'm, I'm going I'm to invest in some boring stock markets. And I'm going to try to have some money to leave to my children and to invest in the kingdom of God or, or with our health. And I want to honor God. I want to I be able to have breath. Just before this service, Riley Goodwin attacked me out of nowhere. And uh, I, I'm still a little bit out of breath from that wrestling match we were in. And I'm starting to think maybe to serve God better, I should get in a little better shape. <laughs> and there are some things I can do to do that. I can go on walks and I, I, can, I can begin to work out and lift weights. I can do these things to influence the outcome, but I just can't control the outcome. Or in your marriage, you can't control what your spouse does, but you can decide, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be offended by them. I'm going to keep loving them even when I don't want to love them. I'm going to keep believing in them and praying for them even when I feel like there's no hope for them and the prayers aren't working. I'm going to keep doing what I can do. I'm going to let go of what I can't control and I'm going to seek to control that which I can control. And the last thing as we read on here, verse 15, I'm going to read it again. It says, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This changes the way we pray, doesn't it, friends, a little bit too. Uh, James, uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, they don't have it on the screen. I'll just read it to you. It says, You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
See, this takes a little bit of our arrogance away when we quit trying to get God to live for our plan and we begin to see that there's a much bigger plan and we live into that script. Instead of praying, God, make this stuff happen for me, we begin to pray, God, what would you like to happen? What is your will in this? Some of the most common prayers I hear, and I'm not necessarily saying they're bad prayers, I'm just saying if it's the full diet of your prayers, they're probably pretty weak. Uh, Prayers like, God, I pray that you would keep my kids safe as they travel. That's, That's not a bad prayer to pray, but it's kind of a selfish prayer, right? What if God's plan is for them to not make it to their destination? Ooh, that hurts, doesn't it? Or, or, or God, please bless this food to our bodies. That's such a weak prayer. That's what food's supposed to do. It's supposed to nourish you. Unless you're eating Oreos and Cheetos, that's what it's going to do. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad prayer either. But it's like, what if God wants you to get food poisoning? And out of that, you show the whole world who Jesus is. And that's what God's plan is for your life. Or, or on, a, on a bigger scale, things like, God, please give me this job that I so desperately want. God, please help me to have this house I want. What if God's will is not for you to have this house? Not to have that job. See, far better prayers, far scarier prayers, and I'm standing up here as a guy who's scared of them just as much as you are, are to say things like, God, show me where I am against your will. God, break me if I need to be broken. God, test me so that I could become more mature in Christ. Oh, I don't know if I want to be tested by God. And yet James 1 tells me that's how I become mature in Christ. I I, I don't know if I want God to break me. And yet I know that it's through breaking it's through the death that new life will find its way to the surface see we try to control god with our prayers and yet i love what c.s lewis says he says i've noticed that the dentist it doesn't matter whether you grip the chair or you sit there calmly the drill drills on <laughs> <laughs> some of us think by gripping the chair we're making life better by saying god you've got to help me here it's it's actually not going to change the will of god god's plan will come so why do we pray? Well, we pray because prayer transforms us. It's through prayer we gain a peace about the plan that is to come. Finally, that was all for free. Verse 17. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. The last thing I want you to know about living in God's plan is that sometimes our purpose has to be more important than our plan. Here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes in my life, I am so fatuated with my plan that I miss God's plan right in front of me. I miss my purpose. Uh, This happens all the time, uh, unfortunately, uh, where people will come to the office while I'm working on my sermon or I'm I'm working on preparing for a meeting or something, and and they'll need help. And and I'll I'll say, I don't have time for this. And I'll just stay in my office and hide and let my wife, who's the secretary, come out and talk to them. And I just kind of hide in my office. When in reality, maybe probably truly, God's purpose was for me to spend the day with them. Uh, my, uh, my wife uh, the other, and her little brother Trevor, it was a couple of weeks, months ago, I think it was, uh, there was a guy who came to the office and he was struggling. Taylor was there alone, so she, she kind of felt weird about uh, letting the guy in and stuff. And, and uh, so she kind of, she turned him away without giving him any help. He didn't have anywhere to go. And uh, she came home and she was like just dejected. Like about, she said, I can't believe I did that. I let the guy go. What if he doesn't have a place to stay? It's really cold. We would try to call him and his phone was shut off. And so Taylor and, and her little brother went out and, and all of us, we went out and we looked for the guy in Woodward a little bit and I couldn't find him. Uh, and I thought, well, we tried. We looked all around town and stuff and, and I was over it. But Taylor just kept saying, man, I just can't believe that that happened. She, she felt so bad uh, about letting this guy go without having what he needed. And uh, 
her and her little brother went out that night and they found the guy at a quick stop and they gave him money so that he could have a place to stay. They filled his truck up with gas so that he could have uh, warmth in his truck. I think that is what God considered a productive day that day for them. See, Taylor went into that day thinking productivity is going to look like getting these tasks done in my schoolwork. Productivity is going to look like getting all this stuff done at work. And God said, no, no, no. Productivity is going to look like you looking for this guy all day and making sure he has what he needs. Because Jesus says, when you love the least of these, you're loving them as if you're loving me. Jesus says something crazy. I don't fully understand it is going to happen when we see him on the day of judgment. He's going to say, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was homeless, you gave me a place to stay. When I had no clothes, you clothed me. When I was a prisoner, you visited me. And then we're going to say, Jesus, when were you a prisoner? When were you clothed? When were, when were you without clothes? When were you homeless? And he's going to say, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. That's why I try to start every day by praying, God, would today be productive, not in the way I see it, but in the way you see it. And that's a scary prayer too, my friends. And Jen and the band, if you guys want to go ahead and come up, uh, you can. This is uh, not an easy message. This is uh, the call of Christianity. This is why Jesus says, uh, to follow me, you must bear your cross. That's why he says something along the lines of, to lose your life is actually to find your life, and the one who searches for his life will lose his life. It's like, what does that even mean? Well, it means if you try to control life and script it out yourself, you're going to be disappointed. And even if you're not disappointed, even those people who write out their dreams and their goals and they get them, everything works out for them. They make it to the top. They have the money. They have everything they need. James 1.10 says this about them. It says, But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up, the grass, its flower falls off, its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. You guys do know how it ends for us on this side of eternity, right? You, you realize whether you have a billion dollars or you're homeless, you know how it ends, right? You're going to wither up and die. You're going to leave this earth. You're going to return to dust. It, it doesn't matter if you're real pretty. Or you don't like the way you look. You're going to wither and you're going to die. It doesn't matter whether you go to church all the time or you don't step foot into a church. You're, you're, you're going to wither and you're going to, you're going to die. So, so what script are you living for? You want to live for your script? It's a very short script. Even the best of scripts are, are really, really short. And at the end of it, you'll be wondering, what is the point of it all? Or do you want to live for the only script that is eternal? The script that runs through all of humanity. The script that says this is not the end. The script that says through Jesus you can have eternal life. Eternal life doesn't begin after we die. It begins now. I can be connected to the God that is eternal right now. And when I die, you will grieve, hopefully. <laughs> but you will not grieve without hope because one day you will be able to say, we will see Blake again and he'll be far better off than what he was before. And the same is true for you, I pray, friends. Let's pray. Father God, you are a beautiful author. You write a script far better than any script we could write. You are working out a plan to restore relationship with your people, restore creation to the way it is intended to be. What a masterful story you are telling. And Lord, thank you that we get to see the climax of the story in Jesus Christ, that the mystery has been revealed, that it's through Jesus all things are held together. Lord, would you give us the courage to surrender that which we can't control? 
to obey in which the Spirit leads us on those things that we can control and to have open eyes and selfless prayers to be able to make a difference right now in the world around us. Lord, help us live each day as a new day. Lord, help us to trust you. And Lord, although we may not know what tomorrow holds, Lord, let us be people who, because we know who the author is, that's enough. We don't know what's coming, but we know who holds what is coming. And he is so, so good. Right now, friends, if you would, just take 20 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed. And I want you to ask, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Perhaps it's something you need to surrender. Perhaps it's something that you know is a good thing to do, but you've been putting it off and you need to do it. Perhaps for you today, it's, God, I want to, for the first time, actually begin living my life in your script. I'm tired of trying to get you to fulfill my script and and living only for what is here. I want to begin to live for something far bigger and far greater. Today, I commit my life to your script. Right now, just ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, give us the courage to obey. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Amen. If you would, friends, please stand and let's sing to this glorious God. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.